Welcome, welcome, welcome to another fantastic episode of Horrorversary. I'm your host, as always, Adrian Torres, and I want to thank you for checking in once again as we, we start to ramp up with these episodes. We're still in the early beginning, so of course there's going to be some snafus here or there. Of course, you guys remember when episode 3 came out before episode 2, but it was still titled episode 3. Well, we're trying to get over that. Uh, there might be snafus here, but it, it's it's great beginnings, and as long as the conversation's good, that's hopefully what matters, and not my technical know-how, because this is a podcast. I'm not putting on a big PowerPoint presentation. Tonight's episode that we're talking about for the movie is, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. It's a special film. It's from one of the all-time great horror directors, and as most of his work, it's one of the ones that doesn't get, really get talked about. It kind of gets talked about in hushed tones, but now that it's in its 40th anniversary, I think lots of people are going to talk about it more. Or they should. Of course, this movie we're talking about is Martin from the great George Romero. And when it comes to Martin, it's always kind of a tricky situation because you're talking about it being a vampire movie and... Again, talked too long, knew the guest was coming. Okay, okay. We'll get into it. We've got time. That's the whole point of this. But I'm really, really, really excited to welcome our fantastic, wonderful, extremely talented guest tonight, Anya Novak. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you for being here. So, and I hopefully I didn't butcher your name. You've got a shorter name out of the other people I've dealt with. So, you got it right. It's, it's Tanya without the T. There we go. There you go. So, for the people who don't know you out there, which is probably a shame, or maybe a couple of things that you're known for push people away, because I know that you worry about that sometimes. Please tell the nice people <laughs> and only the nice people out there your bona fides. Uh, let's see here. So I, I just talk about horror. That's, that's pretty much all I talk about. Um, and in the past, I've written for Birth Movies Death, uh, Daily Grindhouse. I've done some reviews for uh, Diabolique. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pr even pronouncing that right. Um, and I'm currently a columnist at Dread Central, where I look at horror and horror-adjacent films with a focus on men and women and how they interact within the genre. I also do a column at the Daily Grindhouse uh, called Doing the Nasties, which is a journey through the entire video nasties list of films that were banned in the UK during the 1980s. Uh, I also talk about Halloween 6 a lot on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so kind of like I said, since this is a horror podcast, a horror podcast celebrating horror movies that are celebrating anniversaries, I think you're the perfect subject to be on here. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, when it when it comes to horror, I, I like talking about new films. I like talking about indie films, and I love talking about old films, especially ones that haven't been as celebrated as they possibly should be. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that that slight lilt there at the end of your <laughs> sentence definitely describes Martin and the place that it has in, in the film Pantheon. It's a movie that once you see it, it definitely sticks with you. But there's plenty of people that you can mention, um, you know, oh, yeah, vampire films, and they're never going to mention it. Exactly. Yeah, and it definitely does stand out uh, within, not only within horror, but within the vampire film subgenre as well. 
I think for for people who are listening in because they're curious about it, first of all, we have to apologize because this is going to be a spoiler-filled discussion. Now, for some people that might be okay, for some people it may not, but if you have not seen the film, pause this right now, go watch the movie, and then come back and listen to the rest of this. Because when you're talking about Martin, you have to get in the nitty-gritty. But at the same time, I think kind of like the, the modern-day or more recent movies that have kind of gone the same direction as this, you've got, of course, Vampire's Kiss, uh, the Transfiguration, and to a certain mm-hmm. extent, maybe if I'm crazy, putting the addiction in there? I can, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I, for, I think those are kind of in the same type of wavelength. But of course, the most important question is, when was the first time you saw this movie? Okay, so when I first saw this is, I believe, Romero's fifth film. So I think I'm like most people in that after seeing his most well-known stuff, a few of the dead films and, and the creep shows, I went into a deeper dive with this one. And it was over a decade ago back in either 2006 or 2007 when I was stationed in Germany. I used to be in the army. And in the barracks, uh, the lower enlisted folks tend to pass around DVDs, usually action and horror. Every Tuesday we get new DVDs uh, exported overseas. And so... Um, this was one of them. And usually uh, one person gets a DVD and they just pass it around like, yo, you got to see this movie. It's crazy. Which is how I saw many of the French extremity films, by the way. Um, anyway, someone had a copy of Martin on DVD and I saw Romero's name on it and I snatched it up and watched it that night uh, right after work. That's, I, I, I can't think of any better, you know, beginning for a movie. It's kind of probably a weird one if anyone's looking over your shoulder. but It is. At the at the same time, you, you got to see it. I think that's the main thing because it's one for as big as the movies become, as in you know taking on a life of its own. But it's so hard to find. It is, and this one was uh, I think a Lionsgate DVD. I think it was the one that they put out in. It had to be two thousand four, two thousand five, I think. And I'm not sure. It hasn't gotten a Blu-ray release yet, has it? Uh, here, I believe there, I know it was put out on Arrow, and I, I can't remember if it was DVD or Blu-ray, but I know that it was like a UK only, because, uh, they called it Martin the Immortal Edition, and the second disc that's on there is, uh, Wampir, the Italian completely re oh, yeah, version yeah, of yeah. it. So, but, oh, but that's, that's it. And that was back in like 2011, so it's... It's due. Somebody should definitely be putting it out. I mean, you you think that if if Arrow's not going to do it, that someone like Blue Underground could easily they could jump on that. Yeah, I mean, th- they're it's... not going to be listening to this, but if you're listening for some reason, tell tell Blue Underground put this out. It does. It deserves to be to be seen by by more eyes, especially today. I think that um, after like the Transfiguration, like you said, came out and and blew a lot of people away. I think that. A, Many people would be receptive to something like Martin if they hadn't seen it before. In as few words possible, for those people who still haven't pressed pause and gone to to watch the movie because they're weird like that, uh, describe Martin for the uninitiated. Okay, uh, a young man, a young grown man named Martin, uh, thinks that he is a straight up vampire, and that's that's it. I mean, he he kills people, and tries to drink their blood because he thinks he needs it to survive. And whether he is actually a vampire or not is uh, is explored throughout the film. And explored in a, a 
almost gloriously languid pace. I know that some people nowadays would kind of be turned off by the slowness, but it kind of washes over you in that very matter-of-fact 70s style where you've got the POV and you're, you're just following the person in their life, and he just happens to be murdering people. But then Romero makes that bold choice of having the... I don't know if you want to call them dream states, flashbacks. I know there's been lots mm-hmm. of discussion about what it is with the black and white, but it, it feels like a movie that needs to be this slow as opposed to trying to race to the next set piece. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's one of the things that works best with this movie is, is the pacing. It's it's kind of unorthodox for a vampire film. You've got like this slow burn kind of character study interspersed with these frenzied attack sequences and to me, it kind of mimics the cadence of like a true crime thriller, thriller or a slasher film more than any supernatural subgenre. Like it's more close to like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or Angst than it is to something like Dracula or The Hunger. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you there on Angst, especially when he's just kind of um, prowling around and when he yeah. goes to the house and he's got the death sign and then he, he crawls up into the space, but he doesn't attack them then. He's just observing everything he's just hanging out being all creepy like minus the drugs of course <laughs> yeah minus the drugs and it, the those movies uh like the 30 days a night and dracula and whatnot they tend to have this similar constant rhythm from beginning to end whereas in martin there are these um these bleak quiet scenes of him calling into a radio show and re- kind of reaching out and being dismissed and sensationalized at the same time and then you have just a few minutes later, that amazing attack sequence when he sneaks into the home of a woman and finds her fooling around with an unexpected guest. And uh, that that scene is, Romero talked about it himself in this, this book of interviews. I think it's called George A. Romero Interviews. And um, the scene is what he called all doorknobs, telephones, and stairways. It's a perfect <laughs> way to describe the scene. Like, that's what it is. It gets so tense how many years later? What, 30? This, 40. Yeah, horror anniversary. We're, we're 40, 40 now. Yeah. And it's 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 just not the usual drumbeat for a, a vampire film. And I think that really works in its favor. And it stands out in a good way even today. And it's crazy to think that his original cut of the movie was two hours and 45 minutes when going at this pace. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um... And I think there was no, um, didn't he originally have it all in black and white too? Or, or at least he wanted it all in black and white? I think yeah. I read that somewhere. Yeah, he wanted it all in black and white, but the studio that was putting up the money didn't feel confident in him making an experiment, as they called it. Because, mm-hmm. uh, of course, the unfortunate thing about this time for people who haven't looked into the past is that Romero was actually heavily in debt after mm-hmm. not getting the financial uh, payback for... Night of the Living Dead, as well as his follow-up, and he was thinking about declaring bankruptcy. And a friend told him, "Hey, there's nothing wrong if you declare bankruptcy." And he said, "No, let's let's get through this movie first, and mm-hmm. let's see what we can do." And because of the success of this and his next movie, he was actually able to pay off his debts. But he he would he wanted to be in that state, and the studio kind of saw that, hey maybe doing something so weird and esoteric and black and white isn't the best idea. So that's why they limited him to just those few scenes. Right, right. And and it's kind of a shame because, you know, I'd be curious to see what he would have done had he had full creative uh, leeway outside of the studios there. 
with the budget that he had. He's he always fascinates me because when when he's not making the zombie films, and of course I'm stupidly using air quotes, but it's the best thing to do because there's so much going on in those movies, is that mm-hmm. he he's constantly experimenting when he's not in, in that wheelhouse. He's trying to do something different. He's trying to make each movie, you know, so weird. You look at like the crazies, you know, and mm-hmm. it's not exactly the same. You go on and you look at stuff like uh, I can't believe I'm going to say it, but Monkey Shines. And <laughs> he, he's trying things, at least. And it's so weird that so early in his career that Martin is a point where he actually, like, hits upon things really, really well, even if it's just by accident. Mm-hmm. It, it's 1978 was a not only a rad year for horror, but it was an interesting time in his career because it was after... What, Night of the Living Dead, Season mm-hmm. of the Witch, and The Crazies. It was simultaneous with, I think, Dawn of the Dead? Uh, te- technically, I believe the there's the weird Italian release of Dawn of the Dead mm-hmm. before the States get its release. Okay. And then the, then it was just before Night Riders in 1981 and Creepshow and Day of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. Day. So he was really kind of getting into like this creative groove here, and it's especially apparent with the the angle that he took um, with which he approached this simple vampire movie with with Martin. Because of course we're we're talking about it being the 40th anniversary, and, and as you mentioned, how his career ends up going after this. What do you think accounts for the longevity of this movie? The fact that we're still talking about it now today. Oh, gosh, there's so many things here. But I think that one of the things um, that really works with it and and makes it worth watching even today is that it's a very intimate vampire story. Uh, Vampires are free, as opposed to like werewolves and zombies who are largely acting involuntarily. The vampire pretty much does what what he or she wants to do. They, They might like lament their condition or, or aspects of it, like the immortality. But in most stories, they're they're cognizant of it, and eventually they accept their condition. They're kind of like a willing bad guy. Uh, <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of difficult to put the vampire front and center in a story that asks you at certain points to empathize with their struggle to survive. And Martin, it does that at, at certain points. Um, Martin has a vampire that may or may not be an actual vampire, but he is definitely a victim in several instances throughout the movie. Um, and then before I, before I keep going, I can see the tweets being crafted at me right now. Like, how can you call him a, vi- a victim? He killed like 10 people on screen. He admitted to sexually assaulting women. Yeah. I, he, he behaved badly. He's a bad boy mm-hmm. and he deserves to be brought to justice for his crimes. But he was also a young man who insisted that he was a supernatural evil being and no one took him seriously, really. When he called into the radio station, he calls into a radio station, and then the talk show host is just kind of like, hey, this is great stuff. Keep it coming. This is gold. This is solid gold. And Martin is a self-proclaimed vampire, but it's a very human story. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very innovative approach to this old mythos, especially for its time, for 1978. Well, especially because we nowadays we look at things through, of course, we look at it through the prism of today and we try to extrapolate and try to figure out, okay, what were they doing back then? Were they hitting upon these same things in the way we look at it now? And when it comes to mm-hmm. something like Martin, you pick up on little moments that he has with, uh, with Kuda and what we know now about people who are abused in, in various different ways. And, and when it comes to how people treat 
are, are treated if they have a form of mental illness. And that there's a part of Martin that I guess infantilized in a way, or at least he's he's like crystallized in an infant yeah. state because of something that happened. Because while he, we don't know how young he is, of course he says he's 84 years old, but mm -hmm. when you see him, he looks like he should be a teenager about. And, yeah. but he, he's talking about things in a very innocent way. Like he doesn't talk, he doesn't just say sex. He says the sexy times. The sexy times, yeah. Just the like sex stuff. Just like the kid would. And, and when he's actually getting ready to have sex, he even the way he says it, you know, kind of feels like that, where he says, you want me here for sex, don't you? I've never yeah. really tried it before, but I think I might like it with you. And then directly after he has sex with her, and when she's crying, he goes, are you worried about having a baby? I know I yeah. should have worn one of those things. And it's like, he's trapped in that state. And it feels like what little bit we know about the family, there's a chance that there might be, have been some excuse or sorry abuse that was tied to like the the religious fervor mm -hmm, definitely and um the 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 oh i'm forgetting his name already kuda kuda tati kuda kuda he um you know he was actually my only problem with the film with with um i, I thought he was a little too on the nose being dressed in all white from head to toe but uh other than that he his abuse, and, and it was pretty abusive, uh, uh, the way he treated Martin. And I know, I know, Martin's a killer. He was a killer. He killed people. <laughs> but um, he was definitely a victim, too. And, and the way that Kuda treated him uh, was, was tantamount to uh, some kind of ableist abuse. It, it's not really entirely sure, um, or, or, or what's the word I'm looking for? It's not insisted that Martin is um, mentally disturbed, yes. but he, he, he's insisting that he's 84 years old and needs to drink blood to live. So, um, and, and he's, and he's supporting that, that, strangely. Right. He keeps calling him evil and, and Nosferatu every time he freaking sees him, Nosferatu. And um, I guess, are we, are we going to touch on the end here? On, on... Oh, yeah. We, I mean, we'll definitely get that. <laughs> To, to a second, we'll we'll definitely get into Colonel Sanders' vampire hunter in a second. <laughs> uh, but that is a perfect description of, of what he is and what he did. So w one of my only few talents is that I can compare somebody in a way that like creates an image in your mind. I fail at everything else, but that I can do. Um, one of the things that stood out with me with Kuda is when early on when he's got Christine across from him and Martin's kind of skulking and she's just like, I, I think it's a little weird that you're you're letting him believe this, and Kuda's just like, no, it's real. We've got the family books. Did you not read them? We've had nine people cursed in the family line. Three of them are still alive. And makes reference to it, and it's like, okay, it doesn't matter really if he is a vampire or if he isn't, but the way that you're going about this, like, you can't even recognize what you're doing is making things worse. Right, he's definitely exacerbating the situation. He's he's not Martin isn't getting the help that he needs. Exactly, and, and of course you wanted to touch about the end, which definitely because it's so, it's so drastic and sudden. It 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 was it really kind of 
it, it doesn't come out of nowhere because it was kind of hinted at by Kuda throughout the movie. I mean, Kuda says straight up in the beginning, uh, he says, I'm going to save your soul and then I'm going to destroy you. And nevertheless, you're very surprised at the end when he drives a stake through this, this kid's heart. And um, it, um, it, what made it especially kind of tragic is, is that Martin seemed to be trying or actively trying to reach out and, and, he seemed to be aware that there was some kind of condition going on. Mm-hmm. And he he was trying to uh, make a connection with someone who might be able to help him, anyone really. And the one person who kind of connected with him was was this this woman that he slept with. And she uh, she left the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it mildly. <laughs> and okay, so. Uh, I've watched this a few times, and it seems like does he blame does Kuda blame Martin for her death? Um, I yes, I I believe so. Okay. I think it's one yeah. of those that that he heard about it, and because Kuda seems like the world's greatest detective, clearly he he knew that that was one of his customers, and he may have seen them once, or somebody yeah. at the store may have yeah. said it because that that butcher stand that he has has. Some really volatile, opinionated people. Oh, that woman! Yeah, that woman was nuts. She was like, uh, you know, she reminded me of was uh, that lady in the mist, uh, Mrs. Oh, what's her name? No, I know who yeah, you're talking about. Zealot lady in, yeah. in the mist. Marsha Gay Harden. Reminded me of her. Yeah. Yes, Marsha Gay Harden. Um, yeah, she reminded me of her. She was just, she was all wild-eyed, and that ain't right. You can't have these two people in this house, you know, with this boy. Lady needs to chill. And then she just leaves. That's it. She just like just takes off. Like that's that's part of her daily routine. It's just to harangue people. Now, is there a, a signature or standout scene that's encapsulated in your mind that anytime you think of Martin, it it's what comes first? Oh, it was the scene that we we had kind of touched on with with uh, Martin uh, sneaking into the home of this lady. I think her name was Sarah, and he finds her fooling around with. Al. And I, I remember his name because she screams his name like 50 times yes. throughout this, this scene. And it's a, it's an incredibly tense scene because this is a vampire movie. It doesn't take place in a castle. It's in a modern home of these you know, look like upper middle class people. And it becomes incredibly claustrophobic, these, these winding hallways and, and this incredibly tiny... This lady was stuck in a space that looked like it was between two doors. And yes. I couldn't tell if it was a closet or something. I had I had no idea why that room existed, because it, it wasn't helping her at the moment. She was she was stuck behind these two doors, and Martin was trying to get at her with these needles. But um, she uh, she and this guy Al, well, the <laughs> scene starts out like with with him sneaking into the house. He's kind of watching them. He expects to find her. He's gonna yeah. drug her. He's gonna you know drain her blood. But then he he walks in and she's got a guest, and um. At first, the the scene is kind of darkly funny because this this guy he's like, hey, don't get crazy. He thinks that it, that Martin is like a, a husband coming home, yeah. and so he's like, hey, no need to no need to get crazy now. Let's let's all stay calm here. And then you know, Sarah tells him like, I don't I don't fucking I don't know this guy. And then <laughs> and then it starts to get real after that. You know, Martin dies after them. He's not even really phased all that much by the fact that it's a couple. He just kind of. Um, he, he leaves the room and kind of goes back to regroup, but he, he does go after them after that. Yeah. 
doesn't care if it's this this giant dude who I I would not go after even with two syringes. <laughs> uh, but Martin gets smart and he goes downstairs and he finds this couple has what it was it three lines in the house. Bones. Yeah. Oh, why would you? It's, there's one thing that horror teaches you: it's never have more than one line and more than one phone line in the house. Does that date me? Does that make me sound old? Because no, that's something no. we don't really do now. Like, there's still people. I mean, you, you still see ads all the time where they're like, "Hey, make sure to bundle your your TV and internet with your phone." And I'm like, I, I thought about doing it a couple of years ago. I told my wife, <laughs> I was like, you know, let's get this. We're going to save a lot of money. And she goes, "But we we won't use the phone." And I go. Yeah, but what about all the other people who are taking the deal? I doubt they're using the phone either. <laughs> these these guys, they I, I don't know. They they needed a phone in every room in the house, I guess. So, yes. yeah, they Martin shows up and he, all he has to do is you know when one of them tries to dial nine one one, all he all he does is just kind of mash the buttons, <laughs> and it's enough to fluster Sarah. She forgets the number she was supposed to call, and it takes them a while to figure out what's going on to figure out that Martin's up to some shenanigans. And uh, it's it's enough time for him to separate the two and to go after, to lock him outside. He locks, uh, what's his name, Big Al? Yeah. Locks him outside and then goes after Sarah. And um, she's she tries. She tries to get away from him, but it, it doesn't work out too well. And, and everything becomes incredibly claustrophobic. And the scene is very um, angular. There's yeah. there's lots of lots of shut doors and jarred doors and jammed doors and and um, everybody's trying to get in or out of something and no one quite succeeds uh, until the end when when Martin finally uh, gets a hold of of Al and the whole time he's screaming at him you know as he's killing him you weren't supposed to be here you weren't supposed to be here this is your and, fault yeah this is all your fault you know if you weren't here this would have gone so much smoother. And then he kind of quietly, he puts her to sleep and he, he quietly kind of cleans up the scene and it's as if he was never there, at least in his mind. Yeah. And he tucks her in. That's the part that he stays tucks with her me. In. It was that, kind of lovingly. Exactly. It's it's very sweetly done. Right. And it, it's 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 very jarring in that, you know, what, what was it? Ten minutes before he was coming to kill her. And I felt that that was one of the, the creepiest moments in the scene is, is him, like, being so gentle, like a parent tucking yeah. in a child. Well, that's, that's how he is with, with the, the few um, females that, that he comes across in that way, that that's how he reacts. Because, of course, at the very beginning of the movie with the girl uh, in the train car who doesn't go out right away, he tries to reassure her. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm very careful with, with the medication. I make sure... That no one gets gets hurt. I don't want you to feel pain. It's going to be okay. And you're just like, um, okay. Right. You you understand that he's a bad guy. He's totally killed people. I know. He's he's a naughty boy. But he um, he's also he's trying to be as gentle as possible and trying to make it as humane as as he thinks he can. And um, he just it, it makes him more empathetic than it would. If he were just, uh, it's a different vampire I'm thinking of here. <laughs> it's a far cry from like the the dudes of Thirty Days of Night. You yes, know? yes, very much so. And, and but what's interesting about uh, John Amplis to me is his face feels like it was like like he was born to play either an alien or a vampire. 
it does have kind of an uncanny valley like feel to it um where it's it's kind of glossed over and and I think an alien would have been I don't know if he's ever played an alien in anything else but it does he does have like kind of this android look on his face where it's it's very close to mimicking what he thinks a human should look like yeah without actually getting there and, and got, then that's that itself is very unnerving he's got the thin eyes and he's yeah. got the um uh, what's it called his his face is longer than it should be and his nose is is really thin and it it comes off just looking very but yeah i mean it feels like a, a vampire it feels like a vampire in its in-between state it, you can easily see him standing in the corner of the room doing like a captain howdy type face and he's going to unnerve you he looks born from that but actually looking at his imdb he is uh famously nathan's corpse in the father day father's day segment really yeah, and Creepshow, he's he's in the outfit climbing out of the grave as the corpse. Wow. I'm going to have to look at that again. Yeah. Oh, and that's it, Romero too, of course. Okay. Yeah, it, it shows that they worked together for everything, but it was his only like big role, which is interesting because he's so oddly captivating. Like all the choices that, that he makes, there's too many people... Who would overplay it? And that innocent aspect, I think, is is key to his performance. Mm-hmm, absolutely, I believe Savini showed up in in Martin as well. Tom Savini. Yep, with without a mustache, which is kind of creepy to look at. That's why it took me a second to catch him. I mean, you know, he's got like that strong jawline, and it's 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 pretty easy to to recognize uh, Tom Savini. But yeah, he had no mustache in this one, so it was kind of I had to do a double take. <laughs> okay, we've. We've talked where we mentioned earlier a couple of the the movies, The Transfiguration, to an extent, uh, The Addiction, and Vampire's Kiss as kind of modern takes on this. How do you feel that Martin stacks up to those? Uh, In comparison to to other vampire films, um, I I think that it's... Or or vampire non-vampire is what I was looking at. Like, oh, okay. the, like, like the few that go into the whole, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I think what I what I like about it, um, in comparison to those, uh, is this slightly macro level look at at not just vampirism, but like a monstrosity and how it plays in a popular culture. There was that that whole radio segment that that really, all the scenes with him calling into the radio that really kind of uh, put the movie above and beyond for me. Because vampires have been, they've always been used as like a sort of distillation of like repression in society. And it's, it's the same here. But there's like a larger adjacent commentary on top of the social commentary. So like Martin has some deep-seated issues with this darker side of himself like in any vampire movie. But then we've got this whole disc jockey plot that celebrates that darkness. And every time Martin calls in on the show, his voice can be heard on the broadcast along with the jockey's voice. But there's this intentional echo, like a slight delay that you get when you call into the radio broadcast. Uh, I wonder if that dates me, too. Do people still do that from time to time? Do they call into a radio station? Oh, man. Now I have to look it up to to see how long ago it was. But I was thinking that the last time they did that to, like, great effect in a movie was a big fan. But now I feel like big fan was was years ago. It was. Like, the, the passage of time when it comes to, like, when you're trying to put things in context to, like, movies... 
just feels so weird because you're like, yeah, no, I saw that movie just uh, a couple months ago, you know, on Netflix. And then you're like, oh, my God, that was decades ago. Yeah. Now I feel stupid because Big Fan was nine years ago. Oh, jeez. But that's was the last... it really? Yeah. It, it could have been nine. Oh, man. I could have sworn it was like maybe just a couple of years ago. So I guess I guess radio <laughs> radio was still big at that point, but nowadays you don't really you don't really have that. I don't think there's lots of people who unless there's people who are calling in from like their car and talking on the phone while still having the radio. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I I feel uneasy just thinking about it because I'm like that person's going to get in a horrible wreck and kill <laughs> That's that's yeah, what makes me that... feel old. That's an old thing now. Wow. Calling into the radio. Whatever. Uh, the inclusion of that that echo at an audible level, like Romero didn't have to include that. Mm. He could have easily just had Martin calling in and you could have heard the the broadcast, uh, uh, the, pro- the broadcast playing back, but you didn't have to have that delay. We know that there's usually a delay when you do that. At least the, those, old, those of us old enough to have called into a radio show know that there's a delay. But the, I think that there was an intent there. Um, the inclusion of that echo at an audible level added with the context of the subject being discussed, like Martin was talking about his dark urges and his introspection. It felt like it was a purposeful inclusion, that echo alone. Um, and I think that Martin's voice and the things that he speaks upon, um, the sickness he has, his trepidations about sex, all of his societal hangups. It was kind of like a taxi driver monologue that he kept saying into the phone. Yeah. Um, it all kind of reverberates into his environment, to, into our environment. And then with the revelation that the calls are wildly popular and listeners are now calling him the Count and they're requesting more stories from this man who claims to be a vampire. With that revelation, the echoes feel like his evil kind of rippling into pop culture. At yeah. least to me. No, no, no. I completely agree, and I think that's very much uh, Romero's whole, you know, his whole desire for that. Because you have over the credits um, when Tatakuda's uh, burying Varden outside in the garden, that you you hear all the people calling in onto the radio show saying, "Hey, whatever happened to the count? What exactly? What, what was going on with that guy? You know?" And and there's one voice at the very end, you know, that says. Oh, I, I knew the count. I know what happened to him. And it's like to, to keep that story going on and everything. And it's what if at the same time, because, of course, it was really popular back in the day with, you know, callers into shows. And then mm-hmm. even nowadays with with copycats is what if there's someone else who was feeling lonely in the world and was agreeing with the things that he did and felt like they were a vampire, too. And now they're they're carrying on in their own way. Right, right. And it, it, we're, we're all fascinated by that, just as we're fascinated by real life account, well, what they call real life accounts of vampirism, like Elizabeth <laughs> Bathory and, and Vlad the Impaler and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, and, and that could be a reach that that could be, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar in a yeah. movie. But um, it, it felt like it, it felt intentional on Romero's part to me. And so for that, um, that reason alone, I thought that it kind of went above and beyond what it had to as a vampire mm. film and I, I think there's there's a, a a a joking aspect to it as well since it's Romero and, oh yeah and so much that he does that series has that underpinnings of of satirism like my fa- my favorite part personally in the movie is the one scene 
that he tries to film as if it were a traditional horror movie when uh, Tatakuda's um, going home from a, uh, I'm not oh, sure right, where. Right. Yeah, and, and but they, they're starting to film it as if it was an actual old horror movie. You've got the fog coming in. You've got the people yeah. who are spooking him and he looks around and then the, there comes Martin dressed in the Halloween costume and everything. But yes. even even the way everything's played, that uh, it's almost a spoof to Romero, the way he's filming it. Right. He's, he's winking at you in that scene. Exactly. Um, okay. Since you've seen it again uh, after maybe not seeing it for a while, I'm guessing, like a year or mm-hmm. two, maybe? Yeah, it had been a couple of years. Okay. That, no, that's good. That's perfect. Now that you've rewatched it, do you feel it's still worthy of the reverence that we have towards it, or has its light kind of started to fade at all? Oh, not at all. I, th- I think that it, it's definitely worthy, and it, it's um, it, it should be seen and discussed by more horror fans, especially. Uh, I think that for for those of us who who need uh, something heavier, something uh, uh, more hi, something more um, artsy. The, the film definitely gives that in, in Martin's dream sequences. But if you're a Romero fan to begin with, Martin seems to be more in step tonally and stylistically with like Dawn of the Dead and the Crazies and even Season of the Witch. Um, and it deserves to be talked about as much as those films. And it's, it's definitely not as of right now, but I kind of blame that on a lack of exposure to people. Would you, uh, where would you rank it? Uh, amongst Romero's films? Would you put it kind of in the middle set or would you put it more towards top tier? I would put it more towards top tier. I'd, I'd put it probably above, well, I'd put it below Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. But I would definitely put it above, I'd put it above Creep Show. I'd put it above uh, like Land and Land of the Dead and Diary of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people would put a lot of things above Land of and Diary of. But um, I, I do have some blind spots. I've yet to see Monkey Shines. Oh, it's uh, it's a it's a film. That's it's, that's a, it's I mean. a movie. I, I mean, it's it, it's weird, but you, like you can see that he's trying to to take risks. He's trying to make decisions that he normally might not. Um, and it's fun to see it in that light. It's it's never a bad movie. It just doesn't compared to the rest of the things he's done okay so yeah i'd put that above i put martin above those lower tier uh zombie films but definitely somewhere snug within like dawn of the dead the crazies and season of the witch somewhere in there i would put it in the top five of his films no no that's that's good for a movie that not many people would would readily want i think i think that'll help uh, get people interested, you know. If you put it that high of a director that's that beloved, that you know right, right. says something to him. So I mean, I, I I'm not going to disagree with you. Rewatching it again was was lots of fun to mm-hmm. to see both the Romero hallmarks and then all the different things that he's trying to do. Because uh, it it's rare that you get somebody in horror that stays within the set and tries so many different things over their career. And Martin's one where where he seemed, at a low point in his life, he was more creatively astute, as opposed to later in his career when he had lots of attention and notoriety, 
and seems like he wasn't as uh, creatively in step as people would hope. Yeah, yeah, I think that a lot of people felt that some of his later work was, uh, I don't know, paying some bills, and that's about it. Yeah, that's that's where I would put Bruiser, basically. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. 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 Even though I like the dark half, I I surprisingly enjoyed the dark half. I I like that one too. I would I would rank it fairly low, and that's only yes. because a lot of his stuff was so good. Exactly. I, I would. I would you know, it, it was it wasn't a bad movie. It's just, you know, it's not Season of the Witch. It's not Dawn of the Dead. It's not The Crazies. No, you know? no, no. It's not him at the peak of... Uh, it's not, right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm okay with that, though. But yeah, uh, Martin, it may be difficult for some of you guys to, to find, but definitely tr- try to get a hold of it. Uh, the nice thing nowadays with the, the age of the internet is there's plenty of places you can go, whether it be to like an Amazon um, or various other sites, sometimes they'll have a section where you can actually go and you can submit something to them and say, hey, this is something that you guys need to have on streaming. Right. It's also 2018, and this may sound weird, but you do have local libraries. Lots of libraries have online components and have places where you can go and say, hey, I think this is important, whether it be a movie, book, you name it, and you can have them try to get it you'd be surprised how often your library will be like oh yeah that that sounds like an interesting movie that we can probably rent out and if it's this old they'll say that it has historical you know relevance and they'll go out and try to get a copy that's that's how i ended up getting it through my library is because i knew that we were going to have this episode several weeks in advance i put in a little request saying hey i think this would be good that for you guys to have at the library Two days later, they sent a message to me and said, we're going to have it next week. So, Exactly. The library is a great resource, especially if you're constantly broke like me. <laughs> hey, I, I, I go there plenty of times because you never know what you're going to find. And then you can submit nowadays and you're able to get tons of stuff. My library has Arrow video DVDs. Yeah, yeah, mine, mine had a couple of Blue Undergrounds here and there. There was a, there was one that was Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, I can't remember which movie it was, though. But, yeah, they've, they've got a lot of stuff. And I remember during uh, last year, during Banned Books Week, um, you know, they had a whole shelf full of censored stuff that was previously censored in various states and in various countries around the world. And so I put in some requests for movies that had been banned in the UK in the 1980s, some video nasties, and they actually went and ordered a bunch of those movies. Um, and so I was able to see, I think it was Madhouse. Oh, man. Uh, what was it? The, the Witch Who Came From the Sea. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, Foxy Brown was another Ooh. one that I was able to see through my library. <laughs> this episode has been brought to you by your local library. Go <laughs> exactly. It's um, a great resource. <laughs> it, it really is. That's why I've got the, the MGM late night double feature of uh, The Thing with Two Heads and The Incredible Two-Headed Transplants sitting Ooh. on my table. So <laughs> from the library, there you go. Um, as we wrap up, let the nice people out there know where they can find you online. I can be found on uh, AnyaWrites.com. That's A-N-Y-A Writes.com. That's where you have all my clips from Birth Movies Death, uh, uh, Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, uh, links to podcasts I've been on, which will include this one. Yay. And um, 
I've also got uh, upcoming in the mm-hmm. new revival issue of Fangoria magazine. I've got an article in there about the Halloween movies. Uh, really? You don't say. I do say. I'm, I'm also trying to temper my my excitement because I knew that you were contributing something and I really wanted you to, to definitely let people know here in case for some reason they... They miss that in the jumble of exciting news. But now that I know that it's about the Halloween series, I'm even more excited. Oh, I wonder if I was supposed to say that. I didn't. I mean, I'm not saying exactly what it's about. So it should that's, be okay. that's not what it's about. It was a joke, right? You're joking. Totally a joke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I definitely am going to uh, have a, a piece in the new Fangoria. And hopefully in a few more issues to come. My editors seem to like it. So yeah, we'll see. Good. Because you, you didn't give anything... <laughs> away at all you know because i didn't I, d- I don't think phil's gonna listen into this but no nothing was said nothing right said. you didn't hear that phil dear god <laughs> so that that was great um you can find me on uh twitter at yo adrian taurus the twitter for this is really easy it's just at horrorversary the the stupid joke i keep on making is that was part of the reason why i grabbed it because it was available and gave me the idea. So here we are with that. Um, at the same time, you can read my writing over at boomhowdy.com. Um, there are various different reviews over there right now. Uh, I ended up doing four a couple weeks ago because some studio said, hey, do you want the new Scott Adkins movie? And I said, yes. And then they said, do you want the new Nicolas Cage movie? And I said, oh, which one is it? And they said that it was the robbery one. And then I got really sad. <laughs> but for those... It's people, really... It's a roll of the dice with Nicolas Cage. Uh, unfortunately. I thought I thought they were going to be like, hey, we're going to give you an early screener of Mandy. But no, that was not the case. <laughs> unfortunately. I, I mean, if they ask me again, I'll definitely do that. I mean, the like the next day to make up for it another pr person was like here's the uh God, why am i blinking this, on this name now i'm gonna feel terrible uh the kane hotter documentary and i was like yeah i'll take that i feel oh, much yeah. better about that so it works out um if you're a listener to this and you happen to be in the kansas city area remember that every tuesday at the alamo is terror tuesday and we are going to be start showing 35 millimeters there because our wonderful creative director Amber uh, worked her magical ways, and so 35mm is returning to Kansas City. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It, it means a lot to me. Thank you for having me on. And maybe this is a lot of fun. If we, if we keep on doing this and this keeps on going, once we get to the next anniversary of Halloween 6, we will have to have you on. I feel like I feel like I'm the guy for that. I'm I'm the one. Like no one else talks this movie up as well. You know what Alexandra West does? She talks about this a lot too. If but you if you want, whatever, have I, me I, on. I, will, I will go out of my way to find a couple people, and I won't even like be on it. I'll just be sit there to to press record, and then let whoever wants to talk about it talk about it. So. Exactly. We'll all have a lot to talk about. Paul Rudd, Cult of Thorn. What's not to love about this movie? Well, don't answer that. It depends on don't, who talks. Don't, to. Mm-hmm. I want to stay on your good side. I want to stay on your good side. Okay. I get that people generally don't like it, but that they like that I like it. Okay. Before we go, and I will make this really, really short. If it was something that people 
had a giant issue with. People wouldn't have been pushing forever and ever and ever to get the producer's cut. And we wouldn't end up having a remastered full version of the producer's mm-hmm. cut out there for people that not only came in that special edition, but ended up getting its own release. So I think there's more people who like it than dislike it. I think so. And they're going to get the courage to, to join me <laughs> and rise up on Twitter. If they haven't already. If they haven't already. There are dozens of us. And on that note, <laughs> goodbye, everybody.